Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter 8. And uh, again, um, I, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been in this series called Wisdom. But we, um, we came uh, over about uh, three months ago and shared with you what we called um, His Blueprint Capital Campaign. And in the His Blueprint Capital Campaign, if you look at this, uh, it comes out of 1 Chronicles chapter 28, where we begin to read verse 10, where the Bible says, David speaking to his younger son Solomon, if you want to show the His Blueprint, he said, Um, Be strong and do the work. He said, consider now, Solomon, David's son, the Lord has chosen you to build this house. This is the temple that would be built in Israel on Mount Moriah, there at the Temple Mount. He said, be strong and do the work. And it's interesting because this is, of course, the account in Chronicles, but we actually see the the building, see the building of this temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. And temple is built by Solomon, and then he dedicates the temple in this great prayer. And so we felt the Lord lead us in our capital campaign with that one text. Now, of course, God doesn't live in a building made by human hands. He lives in his church, but it takes a building. It takes a facility to facilitate what God wants to do. And that's what we're believing is God has opened up doors of of opportunity with land and ultimately to build. But I want to preach today out of that campaign, okay, with specificity about the knowledge of God contained in what God calls the wisest man who ever lived. And so I'm entitled on this message today, hashtag DP, his blueprint, his blueprint. I went through a, a streak a few months ago where I got listening to these famous commencement addresses from around the country and uh, some really, really great ones out there on YouTube. One was from a, a guy named Admiral uh, William McRaven. He was a U.S. Admiral and former Navy, Navy SEAL, and he shared the, with the, the graduates of the University of, of Texas 10 life lessons that he learned as a Navy SEAL. And he said, here's number one. He said, the first is to make your bed the first thing when you get up every morning. He said, if you do that, you'll have accomplished the very first task of the day, and that will give you a sense of pride. And then it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. And by the end of the day, that one completed task of making your bed have turned into all these tasks being completed. And all the mamas in the room, you feel justified by the way you raised your kids. Can I hear an amen, mamas? So that was your point right there. Another one was a very famous commencement dress given at Stanford University in 2005 by the owner-operator of Apple. His name is Steve Jobs, right? He told graduates about a simple slogan that had shaped his life that he took from a 1970s magazine called The Whole Earth Catalog. Now, before the Google days, they had kind of a travel magazine, travel journal of the world. And the magazine ran for a few years, and then it was discontinued. And so in their final edition, before they were done... They, uh, they, the back cover featured this kind of a beckoning country road. It was early in the morning. It was leading off into the mountains. And underneath it said these words on the back cover, Stay hungry, stay foolish. Stay hungry, stay foolish. And this was their farewell message to America as they signed off from publication. And he said, I read that and it became the theme of my life. The theme of Steve Jobs' life was to stay hungry and to stay foolish. There was one, of course, given by Ellen DeGeneres in Tulane University in 2009. And she said, I quote, when I was asked to make the commencement speech, I immediately said yes. Then I went to look up what commencement meant. I thought in order to make a commencement address, you had to become a famous alumnus or alumni or aluminum or whatever, that you had to graduate from this school. And she said, and I didn't go to college here. And I don't know if your president knows this, but I didn't go to college at all. And she said, at any college, at any point in my my life. And she said, I'm not saying you wasted your time or money, but look at me. I'm a huge celebrity making more money than most of you will ever make. (laughs) That was her her commencement address. Or Will Ferrell, USC 2017. Will Ferrell, the great comedian. He said, I would like to say, I quote, thank you for your warm welcome. I would also like to apologize to all the parents sitting there thinking, Will Ferrell? Why Will Ferrell? I hate that dude. I hate his movies. He's gross. Although he's much better looking in person. Has he lost weight? I graduated from this college years ago and with a degree of sports information. A degree so arduous, so prestigious and difficult that they discontinued it the next year. Today I also am receiving my honorary doctorate. I've been informed that I can now perform minimally invasive surgery at any time and in any place. Even if people don't want it. In fact, I'm legally obligated to perform a surgery at the end of today's address or my degree will be revoked. 
So if you have a sore tooth you won't remove, please meet me over at the surgery center. And by surgery center, center, I mean the windowless van in the parking lot over there. (laughs) So this is a commencement address from from Will Ferrell, right? How many of you from, you graduated high school, you graduated college, and you don't remember your commencement address one iota? How many? How many? Okay. How many of you don't even remember who gave the commencement address? That is very encouraging for a guy who does this for a living, right? I've, I've prepared many of these through my years as a student pastor, a college pastor, and here we are trying to work out what to say, and you're just ready to throw your hat in the air, right? You're not even paying attention to what's actually taking place. But a, a commencement address is supposed to sum up, if you will, a philosophy of life. A commencement address is supposed to give to us what we believe is the most essential principles of living. Now, what's amazing about the passage you and I will study this morning in 1 Kings 8, it's Solomon essentially gives the people of Israel a commencement address, although it has some pretty big differences from the commencement addresses that most of us hear today. And Solomon, instead of giving it in a speech, he delivers it in the form of a prayer. He shares a long prayer, an uninterrupted prayer in 1 Kings 8. It's the dedication of the temple that he had just finished. It took seven years to build and finish. And notice what we're going to do today is we're going to study what God says is the wisest man who ever lived, how he viewed God. And the way that we know he viewed God this way is by the way he prays. Did you know the litmus test, best litmus test of any person's theology is their prayer? So when I want to know what people believe about God, you don't ask them, what do you believe about God? You ask them to pray. And then you listen to that prayer. And that prayer is the most liberating and clear understanding to give off how they believe about God, what they believe about God, how they approach God, what God's nature is like, what God's character. And so we see in Solomon in 1 Kings 8, he makes this prayer of dedication. Now, notice what Solomon said about wisdom, Proverbs 9 and 10. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he said, the knowledge of the Holy One, notice this, knowledge of God is the foundation of understanding. The knowledge of God becomes the foundation for wisdom. In other words, what he's saying is, How I understand God is the basis for my life. The basis for my life. And this prayer that you and I are going to read is an embodiment, if you will, of Solomon's knowledge of God. And as such, that knowledge forms the foundation of the wisdom that he's received. I've shared this quote before. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he We've shared this quote in this, in this church before, and a few years ago we shared this, but this is what A.W. Tozer said. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, i got dot, dot, dot. He goes on to say, your worship is as high or low as the worshiper entertains thoughts about God. And he said, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Our soul begins to become what we behold, is what he's saying. We become what our mental image beholds, we become. He said the most determining fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in the depth of his heart conceives God to be like. That's the most important thing about a human. And this is the exact same thing Solomon is saying. He's saying our knowledge of God is the core basis and the core shaping influence of our lives. So what I want to do today is I want to take apart this prayer and gain some understanding of how he viewed God. Now before I do that, let's talk for a couple minutes about the temple that Solomon was dedicating through prayer. Solomon considered the building of this temple the greatest accomplishment of his life. It was a magnificent structure. Catch this. It took 150,000 laborers more than eight years to construct it. So that's two two Mercedes-Benz stadiums full of people for eight years working every day to construct and to hewn out this temple. It's amazing. For those of you who've been to Israel, all these rocks are as big as this sanctuary. They somehow got them into Israel because you, by the law, could not chisel those out on site. They could not... That once they got laid, they could not be touched, shaved in any way. So they had to be shaved out in the desert fit perfectly, and then rolled in to build and construct this temple. It is mind-boggling when you think about it. Mind-boggling, the advancement, even in civilization back then. But, but it was 150,000 labors for eight years. Now, the temple was layered in gold. It, First Kings tells us that Solomon used more than 4,000 tons of gold and 40,000 tons of silver. So the price of what he used today in today's value of the temple would be about $160 trillion. I didn't say billion, trillion. So $160 trillion to build God's house. One scholar said the amount of gold Solomon used in the temple was about 4-5% to of all the gold ever mined on earth. So one twentieth of the 
earth's gold was found in one building. One building, the temple, where God said, I would dwell. And then there was this precious stones that were lining the walls and marble and onyx and, and rubies and emeralds and the things that covered the walls and the pillars. And this thing had some serious bling power. If you've ever seen a picture of the temple, so there at the temple you have the altar in the outer court. The altar, of course, where you met with God. You had t- uh, five baths on the left. You had five baths on the right that you would wash in. You had something called the sea and the laver. And then you would go into the steps and you would go into the outer court and then the Holy of Holies. And interestingly enough, when you went in the temple, amazingly enough, um, the most significant, I think, aspect of the temple is that how it prefigured the Messiah that would come. Now, a thousand years would have to transpire before Jesus would show up after Solomon's temple is built. But God promised David, the dad of Solomon, that one of his sons would build a place where the people could connect with God. This is where God, He remember, he lived in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now he's going to live in the temple in Israel. And this was fulfilled first by Solomon completing the temple, but it was ultimately fulfilled later by David's great, 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 great grandson named Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? That he would be the ultimate place where we meet with God. Now I don't have enough time to give you all the details of the foreshadowing, but let me give you a couple of things of how the temple prefigured Jesus. Number one, In the center of the temple was an altar. I told you it was right outside the holy place where God uh, dwelt, where sacrifices were made. And sacrifices would be made in order for the, the sacrifice for the sins to be effective. Four things had to happen. Leviticus tells us this. You had to have, number one, you had to have a sinner that was offering a sacrifice. Number two, you had to have the sacrifice, the lamb, the goat, whatever itself. Then three, you had to have a priest to receive the sacrifice. And then number four, you had to have the presence of God to receive that sacrifice. The priest was to perform it. The presence of God would receive it. Well, in Jesus on the cross, you have all four. At the cross, he becomes the sinner in our place. He is our priest who's doing the sacrifice for us. He offered his body, his life, himself as our sacrifice. And he was the very presence of God that received it. Jesus, of course, fulfilled this. And here's another one. The innermost part of the court was called the Holy of Holies. And it was where the Ark of the Covenant resided. I think we have an actual pic of the Ark of Covenant. I think it's being carried by the great theologian Harrison Ford here. Um, but, But this Ark of the Covenant is where God chose to reside, right? And so in this Ark of the Covenant, you had the you had the cherubim. And the cherubim above their wings is where God lived. God said he would live there. And you had the tablets of stone, right? The first tab and the second tab of the Ten Commandments that were found there. And Aaron's budding rod found in the the Ark of the Covenant. Now what's so amazing about this, that God's desire to live here, is that this was separated by the very presence of God or closed off by a veil called the paraket. And in the temple, the paraket, Hebrew literally means to shut off, shut off people from the presence of God. So they were outside of the presence of God, indicating that you could not approach God as a sinner. You couldn't do that. And you're talking about soundproof walls, four inches thick. Now you can imagine how awesome that was that for thousands of years, nobody, hundreds of years, nobody could access the presence of God except the priest one time a year. And while everybody's gathered in Jerusalem there in 33 AD, and they're there in the temple sacrificing a sacrifice, the sacrifice, sacrificial blood, blood of the lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is right outside and on the heel given his life. Imagine the irony of what's happening here on the cross. And when he dies, the Bible says that the, the, the veil, the paraket was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top, because salvation's not found in us approaching God. It's God coming to us. And so God, when he died out there on the mountain there, on the mountainside, which by the way is the reason why I don't believe historically in the place of Golgotha, what they call now, because you can't see the temple. And you remember what happened to the Roman soldier when Jesus died, he fell down because he saw the temple ripped from top to bottom and he said, oh, surely I'm a sinful man. Well, you can't see that from the place of Golgotha. But you can see it from the place of the Mount of Olives. You can see the Temple Mount, those who've been to Jerusalem. But, but it's amazing when you think about the fact that this, this, this rent from top to bottom and God was saying, now people have access to the presence of God, that my very blood has provided the way. So this temple, this whole thing pointed to Jesus. And, and in Solomon's day, though, it was still a thousand years out. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, here they are. The Israelites are bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the temple where Indiana Jones had stored it in Area 51 for the last few years. And so here they come with the Ark of the Covenant, right? And notice what happens. Let's read together 1 Kings 8 and 10. The cloud, when they got there, filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the glory of the cloud or the glory, the Shekinah of God. For the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now look at verse 12. Then Solomon said, the Lord said he would dwell in total darkness. That's interesting. 
The Lord said he would dwell in total darkness. Total darkness means he's unapproachable. It means God's unfindable. It means God's undiscoverable. He's ununderstandable. But watch how it's juxtaposed. Watch how it's put next to a very severe contrast. So he said, God, you live in unapproachable darkness. You're unfindable. Yet, verse 13, I, Solomon said, have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. Now notice that contrast. You live in darkness, yet you have made yourself known in some certain ways. So the first component of the knowledge of God that Solomon knew is this. Solomon knew, number one, that God is a mysterious yet accessible God. God is a mysterious yet accessible God. Verse 12 and 13, God is uncomprehensible in one sense. He's dwelling in total darkness, yet but he's approachable in another sense because he's built the temple where he would live, where the Holy of Holies would be. Because he's incomprehensible, we as believers should give up any hopes of just figuring out God with our minds. He's beyond our ability to understand. And if it follows suit, if we are going to find God and know him, we have to do it in the way and in the place that God has revealed himself. Now, listen, let me real quick. The reason God dwells in darkness is, number one, because of the limited capacities of our mind. So our limited capacity to understand who he really is. Number two, because of the twistedness that's left in our minds even when we become believers. See, one of the greatest, I guess, chronic shortfalls of the human race is this. This is the one sin behind all the other sins. And that is that we constantly minimize God and downplay his glory and we constantly maximize our talents and capacities. Sin has a very sneaky way of decreasing the size of God in your mind and puffing you up in your own estimation. Sin becomes a magnifying glass on your life and takes away the strength or the size of God in your own mind. And so this is a a major chronic downfall. This is a major issue for people. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people you talk to, they think that God's just some slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of themselves. Well, I've got good news for us. God is not a slightly bigger, slightly version of us. Some people, they they talk like this. They say, if God would just show me his ways, I would understand. No, you wouldn't. Okay, no, you wouldn't. His thoughts are as high above the, the earth as the, as the heavens are above the earth. He's not, he didn't think like, he is not like you. God is not like us. Now, he made us in his image, but he's not like us. We, that's, that's foundational to theology. That he is distinct and separate and yet calls us as creatures to be his own. He wants to change us. But think about this. How big must God be? Think about this. He literally exists without beginning or end. That fact alone blows my mind when I think about it. I told a young fellow the other day, I said, uh, the reason God will never stop loving you is because he never started. And that meant to be encouraging, but I think he took it as what you would too, discouraging. And I said, you got to understand, he's eternal. Jeremiah 31.3 says, I've loved you with an eternal love. The reason he doesn't stop loving you is because he never started. He just is love. You can run from it all you want to run from it, but it's not going to stop because it's not based on who you are or what you've done. It's based on who he is, and he's a loving God to the very end. That's who he is. We don't have to balance his love with justice. He is love, and his loving acts take on just ways. He is loving. No need to balance. He is love. God is love. He has our best interest in his mind. He has done and lavished life on us through his son, Jesus Christ. So he's eternal. Now just think about that for a minute. He stands outside a universe that is at least 12 trillion light years across. 12 trillion light years across. Whether you're a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist, I don't know what you are. Um, I won't tell you what I am. I'll just tell you. It, let's just throw it out there. If the earth is 4 billion years old, they, the Bible, uh, the scientists say today that there are light years, or the, excuse me, there are galaxies that we see with the naked eye that are 15 billion light years away. Now, light travels 186,000 miles per second, 93 million miles from the sun to here, eight minutes. It's fast. It hits you with enough horsepower of like, they say about 450,000 horsepower per square inch. Your body literally makes vitamin D the moment the sun hits you. It's hitting you with such force. Now, here's what's so amazing about that is that they say scientists that the earth being 4 billion years old, that means 11 billion years before earth was created, light left that galaxy, left that star, traveled 186,000 miles per second for 11 billion years, then 4 more billion years, and then it touches your eye tonight when you go up and look in the sky. And God breathed that out with a word. With a word. He knows all of the stars. God named every star. He calls all the 3,000 billion trillion stars by name. I can't remember all the names of the kids in our connect group. 
It's like, hey, hey, little junior, how are you doing, buddy? You know? He looks at the stars like, oh, yep, Alpha Centauri, Beetlejuice, Bob, Sam. Yeah, I don't know what God calls him, but he calls all 3,000 billion trillion. He knows the stars by name. And yet he's so in touch with every aspect of your life that you don't lose a hair without him knowing it. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Now, y'all, just time out. Compare that to the capacities of our own minds. I'm clueless on how the things I depend on every day, I don't even know how they work. Something, something makes a noise in my car, I take it straight to King. And I just trust the brother. He tells me every time the dingle arm or something like that is messed up, and I just trust him. I just, just take my money, brother. I, you just change my dingle arm out if you want to. You know, like, I don't even know what this thing is. I, I, it's, it, I mean, I just have to trust my brother, you know? Like, whatever you say, man, you are the mechanic, so I just trust, like, like my phone, right? You got a phone. Like, could I do ministry in the 21st century without a phone? I mean, it's a great question. Like, I, like, could, I, like could I talk? I mean, what would I do? And I don't even know how the thing works, right? I do know that there's an operating system on it. I don't really know what an operating system is, but every now and again, about six months, it'll pop up and say, do you want it? And if I hit yes, I can't talk on my phone for the next three hours because it's got this little apple and the little slow little thing uploading. I'm like, I don't even know, I don't even know how this thing works, yet I depend on it every day. Now, how foolish would it be then for us with such limited capacities to expect to comprehend everything about God or even to subject God to our bar of understanding? It would be foolish. That we'll somehow immediately grasp how He exists eternally or He's a trinity or how all things work to the good of His purpose. It baffles me. You talk to people in the community and they say, you know what, well, this doesn't make sense, so God must not be real. I'm like, who do you think you are? Of course it doesn't make sense. You're finite. He is God. He's infinite. He created us out of sheer grace. Look what Solomon says about Ecclesiastes. He says this about wisdom in life. It's an essential wisdom principle. He said, no one, and by the way, no one includes you. No one can comprehend God's work under the sun. Despite all your efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Notice what he said. Even if the wise claim they, can't, they know, mm-mm. They cannot comprehend it. Look, church, at any given moment in your life, God is doing about 10,000 things in your life, and you are aware of about three of them. And 9,997 of them have never even crossed your mind. And that's good news when we're in transition, because though we very rarely know what happens in transition, He's a couple thousand steps in front of us. And there's no room I walk in, he's not been there. His presence is not lit up. There's no issue I face. You know, missionaries, missionaries don't take God to the nation. There is not a corner of the globe you could take God to. He's there long before you get there inviting you to share his glorious grace. We can't take God anywhere. God is there before us. He's inviting us. We don't come to church and say, oh, Holy Spirit, you're welcome. He says, I'm drawing you. I'm waking you up this morning, putting breath in your body so that you can come here to have the awareness that I'm here long before you were here and I've invited you into my story. So now drink deep of me. God is, God is a mystery, yet He's so accessible. He's so accessible. Here's the number two. It leads me to number two. God is a narrowly accessible God. So yes, He's mysterious. He's accessible, but He's very narrowly accessible. Craig, where do you get this? Look, verse 27, no, 27, He said, well, will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven, can't contain you, much less this temple I've built. But your eyes will watch over this temple day and night. Toward the place, watch this, where you said my name will be there and where you'll hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. For those of you who've been to Jerusalem, you've been to the Welling Wall. The Welling Wall, the, the, the wall where they stick all the pieces of paper in, on the other side of that wall is where God dwelt for a thousand years. It's amazing how holy that moment is, right? You come up to that wall. God lived right there on the other side. And so the Welling Wall is the backside of where God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And the priest would go in one time a year, but it's narrowly accessible. He would go in actually with bells, uh, attached to him and a rope because if he went in and God did not accept the sacrifice or there was sin in his life, he would fall dead in the presence of God. Unless you're going to send a coroner in there to get him, the moment you step through the parakeet, you're dead too. So if he died and they didn't hear the bells anymore, they grabbed the rope and they drug that dead priest right out of the presence of God. No one could approach God. Now, now do you realize what we have in Jesus now? No one could touch the presence of God. No one could access the presence of God. No one, just the priest, one time a year. So if God really dwells in darkness, but he's revealed himself in a specific place, a specific way, it follows suit that the only way to really know him is to seek him in the place that he has revealed himself. That's what makes sense. 
Now, contemporary wisdom says the exact opposite. Contemporary wisdom says the more worldly wise you get and the more sophisticated you become, the more you see God is like a mountain. Like a philosophy professor. So however, God, however you get to God's up to you. It all, all world religions lead to, God, lead to the top of the mountain, so you just take your mountain. You, you, you hike where you want to hike. A philosophy professor who said the way you need to see the world religions is like three blind men falling into a pit with an elephant. And they're blind. And they can't see. Obviously, it's dark. The elephant's down there. They stand up, dust the dirt off of them, and one grabs the tusk of the elephant and said, Oh, it's a spear. Another one stands up, grabs the leg, and he said, Ah, oh, it's, a, it's a tree. Another one stands up. The third one grabs the tail, and he said, It's a broom. And he said, The moral of the story is that no one blind man has the full scope of the whole elephant. They have to put their minds together to determine what the full scope is. He said, world religions are like that. They each have an aspect of God's nature. And you got to put your mind together and then you'll begin to see God clearly. Now, i got three major problems with that analogy. Number one is just sheerly, it's illogical. Because there's one person who sees the whole elephant. You know who it is? The narrator. So how would he know that three don't see the other if he didn't see the whole? (laughs) And you can't. Do something that you say no one else can do. That's unfair. That analogy breaks down. You can't, you can't say you see the whole thing and then they can't see the whole thing because you're blind too. So you, maybe you're in a hole on top of a hole. And then we got this inception thing going on, right? So, so it's illogical. It doesn't work. That's first. Number two, world religions don't say complementary things. They don't say the same things. Like some say you go to heaven or hell. Some say you, you know, ultimately, you, you know, never exist anymore. Some say you get reincarnated. Even a child could possibly see. You can't reconcile these. They're not saying complementary things. Even if you put a coexist bumper sticker on the back of your car, it ain't happening, okay? It's not happening. They don't say complementary things. That's not, that's not bigotry, by the way. It's just simple logic. But here's the main, main reason I have a problem with the God as a mountain approach is who else would you approach like that when you were in trouble in your life? Like, let me give you an example. If you're having a heart attack, you head down to Walmart and you say, you know what, I just love Walmart. Having a heart issue right now, I just love their, love their prices, love that everyone in there leaves me alone. There's no pesky helpers in the aisle disturbing me because you couldn't find a worker if your whole life or the rapture depended on it. Now, you'll get greeted by 22 people at the door, but there'll be one lane open, right? 5 o'clock p.m., one lane, you know. But you, you could go to Walmart and you could be sincere and say, you know what, I got heart issues. Now, you might, you might be genuinely sincere in your preferences, but you're going to die. Because Walmart, last time I checked, did not have any heart specialists on aisle 13. I've never seen any cardiologist doing any work. Now, you can get a lot at Walmart. You can get a Big Mac, haircut, tire change. I mean, you can, get, you can get glasses at Walmart if you want, right? I mean, you can get a lot at Walmart. You can get a bathing suit that you can buy that you'll immediately regret buying. I mean, you'll, you can get a lot of different things, but you can't get a cardiologist, right? In order to get heart help, what do you do? The cardiologist says, I can help you, Craig, but you have to come to my place where it has my name on the door and I have my healing instruments. And this is what people don't understand today. God is narrowly accessible. You have to approach him in the way that he has made himself available. You don't get to just choose how you want to approach him. You don't get to choose and dictate. You have to approach him in the way that he's established and revealed himself. And God said, I put my name and I put my power at this place. If you want my help, you got to seek it right there. I was talking to a girl one time on a plane coming back from Southern California. And I was talking about these things, and she, sure enough, graduated from Harvard. And I had just graduated from Lee University, so I could tell she was a little intimidated by my knowledge. Um, so since she had finished up Harvard, I'd finished up Lee. We were sitting there talking on the plane and having this great conversation. And as we started talking, I, I, was, I was trying to make it simple for her, you know, because she was intimidated. And, uh, and she said, God is like a mountain. Whatever way you want to get to him is fine. And I looked at her and said, with all due respect, what if the pilot of this plane approached the runway? The same way you do God. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, what if he just says, you know what? I'm an open-minded pilot. Just open-minded. and So I'm going to choose to land whenever and however I prefer. And right now, I prefer Olympic Park, downtown Atlanta. Right? And she said, well, I don't think that analogy is the same. And I said, no, in fact, it is. And your inability to perceive that is why you couldn't get into Lee and had to settle for Harvard. Um, I'm just kidding. I didn't say that. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. But, but I did say to her, if God is real and he's not a projection of your mind... He's chosen to place his power and healing in one place. Then it follows that we, if we want to know him, we've got to seek him in that place. 
in the way He is revealed. When the apostles in Acts 4, 12 made the claim that Jesus and salvation could be found in no one else, you know what they did? They said the real miraculous power is found in the name of Jesus. And what they did is they tied it to Jesus' power to heal and Jesus' ability to raise from the dead. They said a lame person needs actual healing power to walk, not just sincere feelings. And they said a dead person needs actual life, not just a sincere desire to live. And he said just as Jesus had the power to heal and the power to get up back out of the grave so alone he has the power of salvation so they would say in acts 4 12 that there is no other name given unto men under heaven whereby men must be saved but the name of jesus if you want access to god you have to seek it through jesus it's the only way there's no other access except through the blood of jesus and if you're wise you'll seek god in the place that he has designated can i give you just one quick application here here's my application The place that God has put His name and the continued power of His Spirit is called the church of Jesus Christ. That's where He's chosen to dwell. He's chosen to dwell in His people. And God does want to be for the cocaine addict that will blow his brain out in Woodstock tonight. But He can't be there unless one of His believers would be open to His fullness and Jesus being manifest through them to go reach to that young man tonight. Why God set it up that way, I don't know. But isn't it amazing that he desires that much partnership with his people? Oh yeah, God could show up in the Shekinah, but how often does he do that? He shows up through his people, full of his spirit, full of his power, full of his wisdom. So we have, listen, we cannot have a casual relationship with the church and then simultaneously have rich access to the blessing of God. He's, He's chosen to dwell in his church. I got two overriding concerns real quick I want to address. First is whenever I talk about the church, I have a fear a lot of times that I'm going to take, talk about the church in a way that's true, but almost so true that we don't apply it to our lives. There, there's been a way we've learned in the Western world to talk about things in such a way or talk about truth in a way that, that keeps it a safe distance from ourselves. For instance, I heard this guy preaching recently, and he, 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 there's nothing I could find that he would say that I disagree with. He was saying everything I agree with, yet something was not clicking. And I started thinking and pondering this, and it was because he was saying things that were so true that, that never really came to a point of application for the people, so they just mindly said, Amen. Oh, it's true, Amen. But see, where the word of the Lord cuts us is not when we just mindlessly say, Amen. It's when it comes in and unsettles us. Not, oh, it's a great message today. It's, oh, that, that hit me weird. That hit me weird. And you go home and you ponder and you think about it. That's where the word of the Lord really comes. That's where the prophetic word really comes. It, it unsettles us. And I need to set with that. The other concern I have is that when we talk about church, we generate what I call idealism in the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life for the Christian faith, well, some would say for World War II and Nazism, but nonetheless, he was a believer. He was hung for his faith in 1945. He went back to Germany when he was already living in the States, and he said, you know what, I'm going to fight for the Jews. And he fought for the Jews, and he was ultimately hanged, but, but he wrote a book called Life Together. He was in prison. He was writing prison letters. He wrote a book. It's, oh, it's fascinating. It's not an easy read. It's an easy read, but it's not... It's not it's complex, okay? So it's a quick read, but nonetheless, it's a weighty. And it's all about Christian community. And here's what he said. He said, everybody, when, when they're Christians, comes to a church community with an ideal already in their mind. He said, everybody comes to church with an ideal. And he says, you cannot begin to become the church until your ideal of the church dies. He said, step number one of the Holy Spirit's work in your life when you come to a church is to kill the way you think about the church. To kill the ideal, why? Because he says if you have an ideal, you'll use that ideal against every other person in the church. You'll judge every brother and sister in the church based upon your ideal of church. On your ideal of how church should function, what the church should be about. He says you will try to force everyone into the ideal of the church. So so listen, when I talk about the church, I'm not talking about idealism. I'm not saying this as an ideal church. I don't think God calls us to ideals. I think God calls us to realities and realities that are livable. He calls us to that, as messy as they are sometimes. So I want to ask you a question. What if we in America are as mistaken about the church as Peter was about Jesus' Messiahship in Matthew 16? Remember the story? Jesus takes him to Caesarea Philippi. He stands at the place of the open Gehenna or hell. And he says, hey, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, ding, 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 gets it right. He says, oh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, yeah, that's great. Yeah, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The father revealed that. That's revelation knowledge. 
That's revelation knowledge. And then he looks at him and he tells him from that moment, Jesus began to tell him he would go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the priests, the Levites, the, 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 the Pharisees, Sadducees. And the Bible says that Peter kindly took the Lord to the side and rebuked him. And he said, no, you won't because messiahs don't go to crosses. Messiahs don't end up on dead crosses. Messiahs come and restore the kingdom of David to Israel. Messiahs run out the Romans out of our city and get us out of Roman oppression. So with all due respect, Jesus, I want to rebuke you. You will not go to the cross. You will not go to Jerusalem. And you will not die at the hands of these men. And what does Jesus say to him? He said, get behind me, Satan. But we stop. There's a comma. He says, for you have in your mind the things of man... Not the things of God. Now watch that, y'all. Watch that. Here's what's happening. Peter has a true confession that Jesus is the Lord. It's prompted by the Holy Spirit. The Father in heaven reveals it. He is speaking truthfully what the Father has said about the Son. And yet, what is in his heart and mind when he says that true confession is in fact untrue. Well, what do you mean, Craig? I mean that it's possible to be prompted by the Spirit, profess something true of God, have a good confession, and yet what is in our hearts and minds when we make that confession is untrue. And what does that lead to? Here's what it leads to. It leads to we can identify who God is, but we misunderstand how God works. So we can know He's the Christ, we just don't think He goes to the cross. See, in any attempt of our finite minds to prevent Jesus from being Jesus is, in fact, demonic in origin. That's why he said, get behind me. Get behind me, Satan. You have a knot in you. The... It means we can identify. We know what God wants to get done, but we don't know how to do it or what to do. We're no, we know we're to love our neighbor and to love our enemy. But until our hearts and minds are brought into alignment with that confession, we often misunderstand what that love looks like on the ground. I could say, hey, you're to love your neighbor. Everybody say, amen. But that's not the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is when now the word comes to you and says, love that neighbor who mistreated you in that way. And he gives you a specific name. Now you're unsettled. That's the word of the Lord. So there's a way we say amen without really engaging it. Without really engaging it. When we come to talk about the church, we know the truisms. We know that the church is the body of Christ. We know it's the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet there's a way when we talk about it that our hearts and minds never align with that. Listen, church, we never know how to live as the church. I saw this a couple years ago. I saw a Facebook post. If you want to go to the enemy's camp, just go to Facebook, okay? The enemy's camp, it just lives right in there. Now, it's good. It can be leveraged for the kingdom, but you know what I'm talking about. I'm scrolling the feed, just whoop, and I see a post with 178 comments. Now, listen. Unless it's a picture of a baby, do not touch that post, okay? Unless it's a picture of a baby, you do not click on that thing, okay? Because you know that that is the enemy's camp personified. Something's going on right there. 178 comments. And I clicked on it, and it was a pastor. And the pastor, foolishly, I read it. He, 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 this was the original status. He, you know, we pastors, we find sermon illustrations everywhere. So he went to the zoo, and he said something like this. He said, um, I'm convinced that many Christians are like zoo animals. He said, they're meant to be wild, but we've caged them up. Well, then you get this flurry of response. And about comment 44, and I'm not weird enough to count them, I'm just guessing. About comment 44, it stops between all of America and, you know, and, and somebody else. And it's just down to two people, another pastor and a woman that's been hurt by the church. And from 44 to 178, it's just back and forth, right? I mean, it's just hammering one after the other. And the first comment that sparked it is she felt the church was to blame for caging the people. And she started expressing her church hurts. Her own hurts. Now, I'm not here. I know living in Christian community with anybody, you've got the possibility of getting hurt, okay? You need to know when you first become a believer, you're going onto an ark, and there's a lot of poo on there, and a lot of peeing, and a lot of animals, and a lot of wild donkeys, and a lot of craziness, okay? And you're going to be there for a couple years. You might as well just kind of fit yourself in. This is no, no, this is no Royal Caribbean. This is the ark, okay? This is one door. This is one door. You're going in through the one door, Jesus, right? I mean, we need to know what we're getting ourselves into. But but I want I want to start a church help viral social media account. You know what I'm saying? Everybody talking about church hurt. What if we did a church help? Hashtag church help. Oh, the church blessed me. Church been paying these folks utility bill. Church been blessing. But everybody wants to get on social media and talk about how they've been hurt. Now, again, not making light of it. But she's fighting. Well, finally, this one pastor who's not the pastor who made the comment, he said, I don't care if you've been hurt or not. You still are required to be a part of a church. Well, you can imagine that went over real well, like a lead balloon. And she responded, and this is when I turned off Facebook and just wanted to weep. She responded and she said, all I know is this. Every day, I get closer to Jesus and further from the church. And I began to weep because that's what we believe in the Western world. 
we actually think it's a biblical possibility to get closer to Jesus and further from His people. Where have we gone so wrong in the last few years that we think it's possible? Now, I, I can weep with her because of her church hurt, and rightfully so. But where have we gotten to a place where we think it's possible to get closer to Jesus and further from the church? How do we come to talk and think that there's a way to have a personal relationship with Jesus that's not a relationship with His body? Like, I love my wife. It's imagine me going to my wife and saying, Babe, I love you so much. I just don't want to be near you. I don't have to see you. Please don't touch me. Please, if you, be, if you would never kiss me again, I'd love you more. Please don't caress me, touch me, run your fingers through my hair. Don't do any of that. I, if I could just kind of love you from a distance and never have to touch you, commune with you, hang out with you, I would love you so much more. That's foolish, yet that's what people are saying when they say they're getting closer to Jesus and further from his church. Further from his body. Or so many people who see themselves as spiritual and not religious. In other words, that's code for I have a personal relationship with Jesus in my heart, but it doesn't change my life in any public way. So I know him in my heart, but I don't really associate him with other believers. And then you got people in our day and age, I don't belong to a community, Craig, I don't belong. I don't have roots to a church. And I just kind of make it up as I go along. And there's something in the air that we breathe, whether we know it or not. And the church is a kind of upgrade to my personal relationship with God. So you have basic package, you have to buy basic package. Basic package is Jesus died for your sins, so he's, he's your savior, so you got that, cool. And then if you want to mature, you go to the next car wash. You go up to the next one. And so you, you kind of get the upgrade to actually get the church. I'm going to belong to a church. So it's kind of an upgrade. If you, you, can, you can deal with Jesus by yourself, interpret scripture however you want to, although no scripture was ever written for personal interpretation is always to be read within the context of a community. That's why every single one of them are plural. But nonetheless, you can read it all by yourself, do all that you want to do by yourself, and then all of a sudden, just if you want kind of an upgrade, then you can kind of join a church. And then they'll kind of ultimately, but it's not demanded in any way, you know? Like if you want it, it's cool. We have this notion that somehow life in the body is not required. And here's another way this expressed itself. A church in uh, Illinois a couple years ago, uh, Willow Creek, one of the first mega churches in America. Great pastor, Bill Hybels. Now, since you've seen what's happened, it's been really sad. But, but, but Bill Hybels, the man, his wife, Lynn Hybels, great missionary impulse. They, um, they, uh, they built this huge megachurch off of consumerism. And they did this study in their church, and they found that people didn't know how to read the Bible. People didn't be baptized. They weren't discipled. They didn't know how to pray. And so they took ownership for it, and they said, we failed miserably. So they write this book and publish it for all American evangelicals and say, we've done it wrong. So they create this plan to try to disciple their people. And here's their goal. You ready? This is their goal. Our goal is to be the kind of church where people can become, over time, self-feeders. And again, I read that, and I want to cry because the cure is worse than the disease. The goal in American Christianity is not for you to be able to feed yourself. The goal is for us to be able to care for one another. The church is not a schoolhouse. Yes, the Word of God is learned through teaching, but it's lived through fellowship. So if it's not lived through fellowship, you got a school, not a church. And the church of Jesus Christ is not there for you to be a scaffolding for your personal relationship so that when you get your personal relationship, you don't need it anymore. No! The church is not personal scaffolding for your personal relationship. The church is who you belong to. The moment you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his body. And thank God that we have that. Thank God that we have brothers and sisters who love us and care for us. Because see, if you think the goal of church is to be a self-feeder, then guess what? You outgrow the church. Because you become a self-feeder, you don't need the church anymore. And I realized, I was reading this, I'm like, that's what I have been taught my whole life in America. The goal is for me to become a self-feeder rather than care for one another. The church is necessary until my relationship with God is strong and then discard it. If you spend time around college people, you, you guys are around college people all the time. People are full of this. Oh, my heavens. They spent their full life studying Scripture, and they have a difficulty getting into a church because they're smarter than everybody else in the church about the Bible. Because they think, again, the goal of Christianity is to know more and not be transformed more. Care more. Love more. Engage more. And they've outgrown that, y'all, and that is tragic. The goal is for us to become the body. Number three, God is a promise-keeping God. He's a promise-keeping God. Look at verse 15. He, he repeats this throughout the prayer. He says, God has fulfilled His promise by His power. And then He repeats it again in 20 and 24 and 25 and 26. And look how He ends this prayer. 
He said, blessed be the Lord, verse 56. He's given rest to his people according to all he has said. Not one of the good promises. I love this. Not one of the good promises God made through his... Go to that next slide. Good promises God made through his servant Moses has failed. And over and over again, what is, what is he saying? He's saying, Solomon did this with the promises of God. He said, like you said, like you said, like you said, like you said, repetition, repetition. Solomon ordered his life around the assumption that the promises of God were true. Write this down if you're taking notes. This is wisdom. Wisdom means aligning your life around the promises of God. That's what wisdom is. It's aligning, aligning your life. It means living in a way that the prom, if the promises of God are not true, you would be a fool. It's not living in a way that you would become moral or nice, but living in a way that if the promises of God were not true, you were a fool. Can you point to areas in your life right now, not where you're nice, not where you're moral, but areas in your life where you can say, if the promises of God aren't true, then my life will make no sense in eternity. Are you able to make the statement, if they're not true, I am totally off kilter. My life will make no sense to people if they're not indeed true. I've been thinking over the last few weeks a number of promises that I've built my life on. Let me share you a couple of those promises. Centering my life around Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto man to die once and after that face judgment. Y'all, I don't do everything right in the Christian life. I fail more than I felt like I succeed. But let me tell you something. Ever since I met Jesus at 16 years old, I don't know if there's a day that's gone by that I haven't woke up and thought, I will stand before God for what I do today. I will stand before God for who I am, what I become, and what I do. That I will stand before God in eternal judgment. I will be before the one whose eyes are like fire. And listen, when you know that, what does uh, Psalm 90 and verse 12 say? He says, teach us to number our days, what? So that our heart may gain. There's our, there's our series. Wisdom. When I know the brevity of life, my heart becomes more wise. When I know and understand that I'm going to stand before God, I become wise. Here's another one we've structured our lives off of. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will be filled or brim over with new wine. Ever since I became a believer, I tithe above and beyond an offering to set our life and our finances around God. This is what you want to do with our lives and use it in the way you want. Here's another promise I've structured my life around is Psalm 84, 11. No good thing will God withhold from them. What? that walk uprightly with him. Did you hear that? No good thing will God withhold. Let me ask you, what would your life look like if you really believed that promise? Let me tell you what your life would look like. Your prayers would get a whole lot more bold because you say, you know what? I need help in parenting right now. So God, you're not gonna withhold anything about how to parent these kids. You're gonna give it because I'm walking blamelessly before you. Hey, I need help in my career right now, God. So I'm gonna boldly say, no good thing will you withhold from me in my career. Lord, I need help in my marriage right now. So God, no good thing will you withhold from my marriage. And listen, if you believe that verse, then when something happens in your life that is different from what you think should happen, you'll never say again, God has forgotten me. No, you'll say what God has for me is better than what I'm even receiving right now. Why? Because no good thing will he withhold from them who walk upright with him. George Mueller, the great missionary, had an orf multiple orphans, orphanages. I mean, he just he, 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 he created huge orphanages overseas. And he embodied Psalm 84, 11. It was his favorite verse. He, he, believed, he believed in God's goodness for boldness in prayer, but then he had to deal and trust God even when he didn't receive that. He ran an orphanage, and on many occasions, he would sit down with hundreds of kids at the dinner table. There would be no food on the table. He'd say, kids, put your hands together. He'd say, God, I thank you that you provide for these kids food. And it's like 15 times in his life, the door would knock. He would go, and somebody would say, hey, we had this extra bread at the bakery, and you have enough people to eat 100 loaves of bread? This didn't happen one time. It's happened like 15 times in his life. No good thing will you withhold. But yet at the same time, his wife contracted rheumatic fever in her 40s. And he prayed for every day and she died. And he gave her funeral. So you see the tension of the Christian life? God meeting the kids' needs, but then didn't meet what his perceived need was for his wife's healing. You know what he said at her funeral? Last words, he closed it down. He said, Psalm 84, 11, no good thing did he withhold from my wife. No good thing. He's a promise-keeping God. One more promise that I've structured my life around, Matthew 24, 14, in this gospel, the kingdom will be preached where in the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then Jesus said, the end will come. You know what that tells me? That's what God's doing in the world. You want to know what God's doing in the world? He's operative in people who are preaching the gospel to the nations. That's what God's doing. 
and we can prioritize our life and mission around that. We don't do missions because we like to travel or want world domination. We do missions because that's what God's promised he will do. He would declare his name. And when you order your life around God's promises, it makes you wise. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ordered your life in a way that assumes God's promises are true or not true? That's a great question. Here's the fourth one. God is a grace-extending God. So God is a mysterious yet accessible God. God is narrowly accessible. God is a promise-keeping God. Number four, God is a grace-extending God. Biggest chunk of this prayer, look at verse 33 through 53, is all about God's willingness Solomon is saying in this prayer, notice what he says, verse 46. He says, when they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you're angry, notice what he said with them, and you hand them over to the enemy, and their captors deport them. Y'all, this sin's so bad, this isn't like fell into recycle or white lies. This is bad sin, like deportation sin. Like you're getting kicked out. He said, when they come to their senses and repent and petition you from their captor's land, you will hear in heaven... And you will uphold their cause. You will forgive the rebellions against you and grant them compassion. What's he saying? The biggest chunk of this whole prayer is that, God, I know we'll mess up again and again, but you'll forgive us. You'll be compassionate to us. And this is the biggest difference between his commencement speech address and the ones that we hear today at high school graduations or colleges, which are largely flattery nonsense. You know, you go to a graduation speech today, you all are above average, you're special, you're unique, you're a snowflake, you're a skittle, you're, you're whatever, you know. I mean, just whatever, they, you know, like nothing can stop you from achieving your dreams except, of course, a disease, a little bad luck, or getting hit by a bus on the way to the parking lot. Or let's just think about the fact that half of your marriages will end in divorce. Oh, no, we won't do that, actually. We're just going to give you a whole bunch of nonsense flattery here in the middle of high school years so that you can think life is going to be, a, you know, some peaches and roses, right? But, but that's, not, that's not what Solomon does here. You know what Solomon does? Solomon says, I'm going to keep on sinning. You're going to to keep on sinning but you you know what we know we know God that you are a God who's compassionate and will forgive that God you are a God who keeps his his speech is built on the understanding that I'm a desperate sinner and God you will help me after I mess things up look at verse 35 when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because of my sin verse 37 when famine or plague comes to the land because of my sin or verse 37 when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities because of their sin when disaster or disease come because of their sin and when a prayer is made here's the good news verse 39 then hear from heaven forgive and act if there's one disturbing reality about this prayer that you might overlook it's the fact that this ceremony was bathed in blood verse 5 says king solomon sacrificed sheep goats and cattle that could not be numbered because there were so many and then he gets done with the dedication. He says, that's not enough blood. Let's get some more. Verse 63, then Solomon offered a sacrifice. What? 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So after the ground's already soaked with blood, he sacrifices 142,000 more animals. Y'all, he's standing in blood up to his knees as he's dedicating this temple. The ground he's standing on is literally soaked in blood. You say, that's morbid. No, it just shows us that the entire basis of our relationship with God, the very ground we stand on, is a blood sacrifice for sin. We can't approach God apart from feet that are red. We can't approach God apart from the blood that Jesus has shed. And all of this blood in the temple pointed to the ultimate blood sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And we walk into the presence of God, y'all, we stand on the very blood of Jesus. We approach God by the blood of Jesus. And that's really good news because the Bible says there's not one of us that doesn't sin. There's nobody in here who doesn't mess up relationships. There's nobody in here who's not acted like a fool sometime and lost all your mind, so to speak, all your wisdom and the effects of poor decisions. Yet, when you come to your senses, here is God standing in the place to overflowing blood saying, I offer you grace. I offer you mercy. I'll offer you sheer gratuity, love. So you know what Solomon says? He says, when you pray towards this place, look at verse 33 and 34, you can rebound from defeat. Verse 35 and 36, you can regain lost blessings. You can, verse 37 and 39, request personal healing. You can, verses uh, uh, 44 and 45, you can regroup. Yeah, there you go, for spiritual victory. And then we can repent and be restored. Notice that all of that takes place when we know that our God is a gracious, gracious God. Gracious God. We come boldly to the throne of grace. C.S. Lewis is at Oxford one day and the philosophy professors came up to him and said, what, does, what separates Christianity from other world religions? He said, I don't want to tell you. He said, give me that chalk. And he walked over to the chalkboard. He wrote G-R-A-C-E. 
E. Because that's what Christianity is. It's grace. It's grace. When you come into God's house with a life messed up by sin, you don't have to feel condemned because Jesus was condemned for you. All the approval you'll ever need is sitting down at the right hand of God right now and He calls you His child through Jesus Christ. That's all the approval you'll ever need. Number five, He is a justice-conscious God. I almost skipped this one, but it would be wrong. So I'll be brief. Look what the Bible says in verse 32. He's justice-conscious. He's conscious of justice. You say, what do you mean? He said, may you judge your servants condemning the wicked man by bringing what he's done on his own head and providing justice for the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Solomon, look, church, knows there will be times in your life where you'll feel like you're deprived of justice. You'll even try to take it to the court and you still won't get the justice you think you deserve. And he says, you know what you do in that moment? He said, I lay it at God's feet knowing that he will one day restore justice to me. Y'all listen, when you believe that, you can finally escape the bitterness of people treating you wrongly. Miroslav Volf, who literally suffered at the hands of the Croatian genocides, this is what he said. He said, when you watch your family and friends murdered in front of you and you watch your dad's blood come down his neck and soak his body, the only way to keep from going insane is to know that there's a God who's angry at what they're doing and he will one day restore justice. And he says, if not, then you will seethe with an insatiable desire to kill those people. And only when you believe that God has the sword in his hand can you lay down the sword from your own hand? Only then can you be free from the hatred and bitterness that arises from an inconsolable desire to avenge your wrong. That's a wise perspective. Sixthly and finally, God is an outward-focused God. Come on, Maddie. He's an outward-focused God. I want to read this last text, verse 41 through 43. So yes, he's a justice-conscious God. Yes, he's a promise-keeping God. Yes, he is a grace-extending God. Yes, he is a mysterious yet accessible God. Yes, he's a nearly accessible God. But sixthly and finally, he is an outward-focused God. He said, even for the foreigner who's not of your people, this is Solomon praying, they have come from a distant land and because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray towards this temple and then they'll hear from heaven. And he said, God, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that the peoples of earth will know your name. What? And fear you as you do the people of Israel. That they may know this house that I have built bears your name. Y'all listen. Every point in Israel's history, God had in mind the outsider. There's not a point in Israel's history. God blessed them to make them a blessing. The temple was built with the salvation of all nations in mind. You are saved with the salvation of the nations in mind. I don't know how God works this way, but he does. Your neighbor who's not here today, who's down at the bar, they're not here today and you're here today because God loves you and you've achieved something. You're here today because he wants to teach you how you can go care for them. See, it's not a love story about you. It's a love story about them. You were not saved for you or you would have been taken to heaven. You were saved for them. It's not that you were saved for you. It's you were saved for them. God always chooses Peter's boat in order to bless them so much that they have to call another boat. And I don't know why God chooses some and not the others, but that's the way God works in the world. He will. He, and, and part of Christian maturity is being okay with God blessing their life and not your life. Well, the reason God blesses their life is so that you would be called into their story. God's desire is not that you would just be saved and set on it. It's so that you would have the nations in mind. This is the maddest Jesus ever got. He went into the temple. He took a, a cat of nine tails and began to whip the Gentiles out of the, the court of Gentiles. And we've always heard that preach like, oh, don't go sell t-shirts in the lobby because this is a, not a den of thieves, right? This is a prayer of all nations. That's not what Jesus said. He said, you've taken a house of prayer for all nations and turned it into a den of thieves. You know what was actually happening? When Solomon built the temple, he knew that the Gentiles and Queen of Sheba couldn't get into the holy place. So he created the outer court so that people who were not Jews could come and see what God was doing. And so you knew what he said to these Jews you already got the holy of holies now you're taking the court of the Gentiles you took my temple and you took my name and you turned it in on yourself you made church about you and I'm here to tell you Jesus if he was here he would still get just as mad and whip some people if he came into our churches where we think church is about us he's the same Jesus it's not about us it's about them it's about them God, you saved me with them in mind. God is like a spiritual cyclone. He never pulls you in without flinging you out. You're flung in and flung back out. 
You're trained of the church and sent back to those who desperately need His grace. You need His grace. These six truths shaped Solomon's knowledge of God. And I end with this verse. You know what God says? He hears this whole prayer. This is so beautiful, y'all. God hears this whole prayer. It's faithful. Solomon does what he's called to do. And then God answers. You know what God says? Oh, you know. You just heard it out of context. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And we've taken that promise and we misapplied it to the United States of America saying that if America will turn to prayer and God, he will send national prosperity. No offense to Toby Keith here, but the promise of this prayer is not God is made to America. It's what he made to his church because we don't, America doesn't bear his name. We're called America, not God, okay? We're not called his church. We're called America. So we're not named after his name, but what God says is when his church turns from their wicked ways and God will hear from heaven. He'll heal us so that we can heal America. He'll heal us so that we can heal those around us. Why? Because again, he is about the outsider. So you don't have to be so smart today that you can center your life on the character of God and you gain wisdom. Because wise life is the praying life. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.